Hello, and welcome to Out of Oscar, a film and Oscar podcast where a special guest and myself focus on unsuccessful Best Picture contenders, plus the Academy's nominees. All right, please welcome Gordon from the Lone Acting Nominees podcast. Gordon, thank you for being here today. Hi, uh, thank you for having me on. I'm, I'm excited uh, to come on here. Uh, I've listened to a few episodes of your show so far. It's fun, and I'm excited to talk about this year and these movies. Thank you. And for those that don't know, Gordon and I actually recorded an episode over on his podcast about Jane Wyman in Magnificent Obsession. And we had a few things to say about that nomination. So, did indeed, yeah. <laughs> so do check that out as well. But today we're discussing Jonathan Demme's Melvin and Howard, which in Best Picture equivalent categories earned precursor nominations at the National Board of Review, Golden Globes, and the New York Film Critics Circle. And it actually won the National Society of Film Critics, notoriously snobby institution. And actually, if you look at Melvin and Howard's poster, it has winner best picture on the top. And then in small font, it says National Society of Film Critics. So that's how the marketing (laughs) gets you. (laughs) Um, Melvin and Howard. Okay, let's run this through quite quickly. So it's the story of a hard luck Melvin E. Dumas, who claimed to have received a will naming him an heir to the fortune of Howard Hughes. How did he meet Howard Hughes on the side of the road, as you do? Um, And the film is not light on Melvin's hard luck. We see quite a lot of that, Uh, especially with his first wife, Linda, who is played pretty well by Mary Steenburgen in an Oscar-winning performance. Um, And the film actually won original screenplay, which I kind of disagree with, but we'll get there. And Jason, Jason Robards was nominated for Supporting Actor, because they will nominate him for doing anything. Uh, but why did you choose Melvin and Howard for discussion? So I'd never seen this before. And so uh, partially it was, you know, I'm curious to see what this movie is, this movie that won Best Supporting Actress and Best Original Screenplay. And uh, is a, a lot of what I ended up picking it for primarily was because I really like early Jonathan Demme. And I think he's one of the more fascinating directors of the sort of 80s onward in American cinema. And just to to look at this movie, which is like right after his uh, Corman days and before he gets into like, you know, stuff like Stop Making Sense and Something Wild and Married Mm. to the Mob and then, you know, Silence of the Lambs. And then he, yeah, yeah, and then he sort of one-ups and becomes an even more mainstream guy. But to look at sort of like the transitional period between very independent and then very studio careers and to look at this movie as sort of the next stepping stone up in his career i wanted to see how it fit into that puzzle piece and uh i think you you note a lot of what would become demi-isms i guess in this movie but there aren't all that many like there's a few moments where i was you know watching this movie and i thought okay this is a jonathan demi movie this is i'm seeing what the like the skills that he will hone later on and the things that he will develop and become his style but it's also not he's not quite there yet so it was interesting to see this uh as an as as an early Jonathan Demi movie and I I think he was the main reason I ended up picking this movie yeah and 
if you know a little bit about Paul Thomas Anderson, you'd know that Jonathan Demi is a huge influence for him. But if you'd only yeah. known Demi from Silence of the Lambs, say like his bigger films or Philadelphia, even you'd think, how does that fit into place? You have to go back and watch these films and you kind of see the similarities in both directors are interested in a motley of characters and less so plot. It's more like a feeling. And I know there's like, there's a quite a clickbaity video out there called what licorice pizza steals from. Um, and if you watch it, Melvin and Howard is talked quite a bit about. So oh, I hadn't thought about that, but that actually makes a lot of sense as far as the uh, Gary <laughs> Valentine character. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So Gary and Melvin are sort of like hand in hand in in quite a few ways. As for the film, though, it didn't quite have me. I thought that it was a bit floaty, not as grand as grounded as I was expecting. And the thing that I found curious was even though you can, it's quite a linear story, it all moves in one direction. I kind of had myself like thinking back on the previous scene and wondering how we had <laughs> advanced here. It just has that feel to it. That's very like um, spacey and in the air. And I know that is why I love the films of Paul Thomas Anderson, but there's something like, there's something missing here that I can't quite put my finger on. And I noticed that like, it doesn't have the greatest of receptions over on, letterboxed if we want to use that as a gauge of measure yeah i think a lot of what it boils down to is that the movie's called melvin and howard and you get a whole lot of melvin and not a lot of howard like (laughs) when you were describing the plot of the movie the first thing you said was it's about a man who was uh who claimed to have gotten this will from howard hughes that he doesn't get the will until it's like 25 minutes left of this movie that's Mm -hmm. like almost two hours long a lot of the movie is kind of so the opening scene he picks up howard hughes who's like crashed his motorcycle and you know drives him to into vegas and drops him off at this place and then there's like another hour or so of movie that has nothing to do with howard hughes that's just this guy you know existing Mm -hmm. in his space his relationship with his first wife and his kids and their financial struggles, and when she leaves him and goes to become an exotic dancer, and then he goes and gets her again, and they get married again, and all this stuff. Like, so much of the movie is just, hey, this kind of shitty guy that nobody in his life really likes Hmm. maybe met Howard Hughes, and then later on maybe got a will from him. Let's look at all the stuff that happened in between that has nothing to do with that. (laughs) And the most interesting parts of the movie are kind of the, the stuff that has to do with Howard Hughes. So it's kind of interesting that they chose to uh, to spend so much time on everything that has nothing to do with it. Yeah. And I, I don't think that the relationship between Melvin and Howard, where if you look at the stylized version of the title and Howard is very small compared to Melvin, it was Melvin's story after all, but yeah, it's the sort of thing that you like think back on the first scene where they spend about 15 minutes together driving in the car and I don't know, for me, I couldn't really correlate that to whatever was happening. And I know it's like there's this ambiguity around was it, did Howard Hughes really give him the will? It is a true story, but like, I just don't know that much about it. Um, I mean, even the true story is kind of ambiguous. Like at this point in time, it had been like a year or two since they uh, they legally decided in court that uh, this had all been faked and the... Mm-hmm. Uh, the will was a forgery and he didn't get the inheritance. And then like decades after the fact, like after this movie and everything, 
more evidence came to light to suggest that maybe it was real after all and mm-hmm. just all of the inconsistencies in the will were Howard Hughes being a crazy old man who can't think straight and can't write straight and it was just you know a defamation thing they didn't want to give him the money and that's where it all boiled down to to the point that like no one really knows whether any of this actually happened or not yeah. and the real guy uh, uh Melvin Dumar has passed away a couple years ago so I mean, if they do find evidence one way or the other, it's not like he's getting the inheritance now. But yeah, it it, it does kind of uh, embody that uncertainty. Like it presents these things as having happened because we see them happen. We There is a Howard, like Jason Robards is Howard Hughes in this movie. Hmm. And yet it's still, you know, you, you kind of doubt, is this an unre- unreliable narrator thing where we're just seeing that because that's what he's, that's the story that he's telling. Like, is this movie lying to us in the same way that Melvin Dumar maybe lied to the public? Who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. But even so, I think that that angle, if it's coming from there, was like really unfocused anyway. You don't really know what this movie is trying to communicate. And even that becomes like a bit unsatisfying within itself. But I do, I do know what you're saying. Um, I also like how it was pointed out that this film is quote a biopic of someone undeserving so there yes. you go yes <laughs> yeah that's a uh, i don't i didn't write down the name of the book but that's like a a phrase that was coined uh like this is considered one of the first movies in that sort of genre uh and apparently like scott alexander and larry karazuski pull from mm-hmm. that genre a lot like with uh, maybe not Ed Wood, because that is someone that's, you know, more notable, but something like People versus Larry Flint yeah. or Autofocus or some of their other movies that are about maybe somewhat unsavory people in the culture, people that don't have the most, you know, biopic. Uh, they don't have lives mm-hmm. that necessarily lend themselves to the biopic formula. And yet we're still going to tell the story of this person. Uh, Man on the Moon is another one from them. Mm-hmm. But th- there have been other movies that do that, like something like. You know, these aren't as these aren't necessarily good movies, but uh, Richard Jewell or uh, Hillbilly Elegy are movies that aren't mm-hmm. about these like great historical figures. They're just like people that happen to be captured in the culture for a little bit. And so we're going to make a movie about them. And are they actually deserving? Who knows? But this, yeah, this movie is cited as one of the early examples of the uh, BOSUD, is how that's yeah. sort of acronymized. Yeah. And I'd just like to add the eyes of Tammy Faye to that. It's okay. Yeah. I'll get over it. <laughs> <laughs> but okay. So now um, Steen Virgin, Mary Steen Virgin, I want to get into because she won an Oscar yes. for this film in a category that I haven't actually seen much from, but anyhow, so she's playing Linda, his first wife, and she is a bit chaotic, mannered chaos is how I like wrote it down. In that you can see an actor's mannerisms in it. It's very much like a, a showy performance. Even the way that she like wibble wobbles around is like kind of funny too. Yeah. Um, but there's also like a sadness to it. She has to essentially strip to make her money. And she has a young child to care for. Her relationship with Melvin is kind of falling apart. Um, but yeah, not a lot of people know that Mary Steenburgen, at least outside of the Oscar uh, aficionados, know that she has an Oscar, um, but she does. Even if this film is, as she says, like sort of hard to find, even though I watched it on YouTube, so it wasn't 
it wasn't too hard yeah. for me to find, but apparently the studio sort of just like uh, had a way with it. But yeah, what do you yeah, think? She about has a we- she has a, w- a weird little intersect of career where like she's a name that you could probably ask someone that's like vaguely familiar with uh, entertainment, and they would know. Oh yeah, Mary Steenburgen. I've seen her in x movie or whatever whatever i've seen her in i know that she's you know married to dead dance and i know all this stuff about her and yet being an oscar winner isn't necessarily a a part of her career that we bring up all the time like you could probably talk to someone that knows who mary steenburgen is and doesn't even know that she's been nominated much less a one and oscar but i thought she was a she was very fun in this movie it felt kind of like a She's doing a bit of a Judy Holiday type thing in terms of her bubbly sort of not quite ditzy, but like that's kind of the character trope that she's being mm-hmm. boxed into. But she doesn't stay boxed in that role. Like like we said, she becomes an exotic dancer for a little bit in the mid section uh, or the early, I guess the, uh, the early section of the movie, whatever. Um, but like you said, there's a sadness to that, but I, I don't really necessarily get that. Like when... Melvin shows up to the bar where she's dancing and he's trying to wave her down and like come collect her and bring her back home. And she sees him. She's not like scared of him or upset that he's there. She just, oh, Melvin. Hey, Melvin. And she like waves to him from the stage. And then it gets worse from there as he like storms the stage and unplugs the music or whatever. But when she sees him there, like she's not ashamed that this is the sort of uh, career path that her life has taken her on. That's just a way that she can make money and she doesn't seem like she she says she likes dancing like that's why she's not going to quit is because she has a good time while mm. she's up there and I there, think I there's just, more layers yeah. yeah yeah but like just when they have that talent show game show thingy just the way like the host interacts with her and it's like you think about on a broad and like a broad outlook the prostitution of like her talent to get on yeah. stage and humiliate herself in front of that like sexist host. Um, and also just like the last scene. I don't think it's necessarily like a sad, char- a sad character, but you know, there's like, that, a depth yeah. to it. And you know, when she's on the phone call uh, to Melvin and you can oh, most definitely yeah. when it pans out that she's had to remarry for circumstances. Yeah. Yeah, um, she's definitely not a woman who uh, life has not dealt her the best hand, but mm-hmm. she seems to be an optimist that you know she gets out when she knows Mm -hmm. that she's being untreated or mistreated for the most part like she is able to leave with her kids and find a better life where she needs to and she there's a few moments where she's not uh, partnered with any guy at a certain point where it's just her and her daughter where she seems like she would be a competent single mother it's just that she doesn't have the means to be so and so she does end up depending on these men. Is but this when she's, she's not... like making the sandwich in the beginning? Yeah, when or... she's making yeah. the sandwich or when she's in the bathroom, like, you know, mm-hmm. fixing her dress or whatever. There's like, there's a few moments like that where she, she is not, you know, this weakling that is dependent on men to be able to survive. She's just, you know, a victim of circumstance where sometimes she does have to find herself with a man that she's not necessarily all that affectionate for as more of a financial support rather than Mm -hmm. as an emotional support. And I I liked that aspect of the character. I thought that it was, again, more layered than I expected 
from what I was aware of of this Same. character. And also just like such a character actor's Oscar, if that makes sense. You yes. can tell like this is someone who's not going to get leading roles. It kind of reminds me a bit of like Mercedes rules when for oh, the yeah. Fisher King. It's just something that's like really rambunctious and kind of like scene stealing. I just also like, um, I don't know. I, <laughs> it's going to sound strange, but I like when she raises her voice. I like when Melvin buys the boat. She's about to get in the taxi. The way she says, you're a loser, Melvin. She's just yelling yeah. in the street. I just think like there's such a, um, uh, I don't know, like she's bringing something out from, from within, like doing that. Like it's very, uh, I don't know, it's just a good performance. It's a loud performance and it's showy, but it worked for me. And I think it's also particularly showy and scene stealing because Paul Lamatt is not very good in this movie. And so anytime uh, she yeah. has to share the screen with him or she gets highlighted in a scene, is like, oh, yes, someone who can actually act, someone who can carry a scene. Please mm-hmm. stay. We, we want you to be here. We want, we want to follow you. You're the more interesting person. You're the more interesting performer here. Uh, yeah, he's kind of a, a void in this movie. I, I did not yeah, find I can't... much interest in him. Not the most fascinating protagonist. Uh, yeah. He probably took biopic of someone undeserving a little bit to heart and a little bit copped out. <laughs> but yeah, I mentioned, so we have Jason Robards playing Howard Hughes and this film ties back into him. It's kind of like a full circle thing. He bookends in a way the film. Um, now this is the same Howard Hughes that Leonardo DiCaprio would play 20 so years later. Yep. And I just I'm very tickled by that. I think that's very funny. <laughs> just the <laughs> contrast that someone can play a real life person with. Um, and I'm not the biggest Jason Robards fan. I, I think that a lot of his nominations are a little bit undeserving in that he wings a lot of his performances. I am yeah. quite resentful about the Julia win still, even though I will admit that is not the greatest category. And although I like all the pred- president's men. I don't really remember him in that film. I remember Jane Alexander, go figure. She's in it for like 10 minutes. And I'm going off like four or five years ago watching all the president's men. But yeah, I don't know what he brings to films. I'm sorry. Maybe if you can defend our two-time oh, well, Academy winning. I, I have liked him in a lot of other things, but just speaking to all the president's men, the first time I watched it, I didn't know that he had won for it. So going in after the, like what going into the movie, I wasn't focused on him. And after the fact, he left no impact. And I, when I looked it up, I was like, oh, I guess I just wasn't paying attention to him. And then I watched it again last year and paid attention to him specifically. And he really still doesn't leave much of an impact. It's kind of just a, there's a lot of people in this movie and we need a a way to reward the cast. So Mm. we're going to give it to Robards when it could have easily have been, you know, uh, uh, what's his name from, why am I blanking on that guy's name? He won uh, for A Thousand Clowns. He's in 12 Angry Men. Martin, Martin Balsam. Balsam, yeah. Yeah, he's, he has kind of about as much screen time and as, as much presence as Robards does. Or like even Hell Holbrook as Deep Throat is mm-hmm. much more interesting when you're talking about a smaller role in that movie. But as far as Robards goes, I've liked him in plenty of other things. I think he's very good in Magnolia. I think he does a really good job in Once Upon a Time in the West. I think he's great in something like Long Day's Journey into Night, which has 
you know, all mm-hmm. four of those uh, actors delivering on all cylinders and like ask me on a good day. Robards is maybe my favorite of that cast, but like, yeah, he, he's given a lot of very good performances and his nomination slate at the Oscars does not reflect the highlights of his career. Mm-hmm. And there are quite a few actors like that. Yeah. I mean, exactly. for, you know, even if you kind of look at like female leading performers, the one that always comes to mind, it's like Deborah, you know, Carr, Kerr, whatever. Great yeah. performer, but you nominated her for this. And it's like when Greer Garson did her consecutive nominations, it's like you really went for Mrs. Parkinson. I just don't. I, I, yeah. I, you've, you've lost me with that. Um, it's a flawed yeah. institution. That's it, the, it really the is. Whole and, that's, thing. and that's why we come back to it for clearly more pain. Um, but yeah, my yes. thoughts with Robards was they will nominate him for just being a bit mediocre and delivering the lines in a competent fashion. I am, yeah. I do not get it. I'm. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't really know what this nomination is for other than we clearly like you right now and you're playing a historical figure that is in the title and you have mm-hmm. a, like two kind of scene-stealing scenes and that's about it. No, that's mm-hmm. that's literally it. He isn't in the he's rest in, of the movie. He's in otherwise, like two scenes. He's yeah. in, he has exactly two scenes. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, no, I, I guess it's just a sort of, well, we need someone to fill out this fifth slot. Robards was in that movie. Let's let's give it to him. Let's see what. Yeah. Yeah, and even to my point before about PTA, he, Paul Thomas Anderson would come back for Jason Robards. And Magnolia yeah. would be his final screen performance. Final screen I performance believe, is that? I believe or? so. Yeah, he yeah. died like the next year. Yeah, that, okay. that's a very you know, not quite meta casting, but like I, I think he did also die of cancer. Like he was dying when they made that movie. I know it must be awful to have that, or maybe it's cathartic. I don't know. Who knows? You, we just don't know these you go, things. You go out on a high note at the very least. Yeah. Oh, I also mentioned before that I was not happy about Melvin Howard winning original screenplay. Because my thing is that airplane or flying high, as it's called in Australia, for those that don't know, should have been nominated and should have won. I think technically airplane was uh, oh, it was adapted. That's right. It's yeah. adapted because they, they bought the rights to zero hour. <laughs> yeah, zero hour. They bought the script for zero hour and adapted it from that. It's one of those that like you forget is adapted because it is so fresh. It's so original with its take. Mm-hmm. And yet technically it's an adaptation um, didn't the baptist yeah, do if, something if, weird with it like nominated in, in original hold on let me just it might have been i i don't remember the the full story there but i do think that that uh but yeah there's other things that could have ha- like i don't think i've seen any of these a- others here like i haven't seen private benjamin yet although i know that that's one that i do need to but like they could have given it to Private Benjamin and, and then Nancy Myers would have an Oscar. So like mm-hmm. yeah. cosmically in the long run, Nancy <laughs> Myers, Bo Goldman, who's to say? Like I yeah. do think it's interesting, by the way. Um uh in his acceptance speech, Bo Goldman thanked uh he, Melvin Howard. He, he called him Melvin Howard instead of Melvin Dumar, which love it. You know, <laughs> I, I love it. It's he great. He knows his he knows his material, he knows his script really well. But you know, I can't be too uh you know, disappointed about Jason Robards' nomination because he did not win. Who yeah. we have as that winner is probably like top five supporting actor winners for me. Oh, although yeah, I'm only great. like on 
Okay, the actual stat is 55%. I've seen 55% of supporting actor winners. It's like the lowest um, for like the four main categories. Yeah. So I haven't seen many, but Timothy Hutton probably gives my favorite. Probably his favorite he, of the bunch. Yeah, he's way up there for me. He's one of my all-time favorites. Uh, and we'll talk about that movie more in just a bit. I do want to say one more thing, though, about this movie that I was uh, shocked to find when I was reading the IMDb trivia. So you know how there's a few scenes where it'll cut to Mary Steenburgen at home and like her mom is in the background of a, of a shot? Mary Steenburgen's mom? Oh, like, yeah, well, the character, Linda's, yeah. Linda's mom. Uh, Maybe? I don't she, know. So she, she doesn't have any lines in this movie, but do you know who what actress that is? Oh, it's Gloria Graham, isn't it? It's Gloria Graham. I and had they, no idea. Yeah. I had absolutely no idea. of her lines, which is just brutal. That's an Academy Award winning actress. It is. And like, it's not like where I'm necessarily the biggest Gloria Graham fan, given her, you know, personal life and all the, mm-hmm. the gross stuff going on there. But like, it's still wild that you have this essentially a screen legend in your movie and you cut out every single line of hers, mm-hmm. but keep her in the movie still in the background. That's crazy. I don't even think I like noticed her in the background. I remember her coming up in the credits and thinking, where was she? Sorry, did I? Yeah, <laughs> did I miss something. Yeah, it's, it's so it's strange. Yeah, it's very strange. So, are you the? Are you an ordinary people super fan? <laughs> I am. Yeah, I oh, rewatched it for this. Right, I'm so it, happy. I hadn't <laughs> seen it since high school, but I remembered liking it then. But then rewatching it for this, yeah, no, it all came back. Like that movie is great. And I was like afraid to revisit it. That's the thing, because there are some films that just work on the first go and that's it but yeah very pleasantly surprised not surprised but happy that it still sticks and it is still i think a flawless film i'm just gonna i I just think it's so great and kind of like a bit difficult to discuss because it's just film that just agrees with me but i do like just the rich emotion and the fact that it doesn't stray into melodrama Rewatching it, that has stuck out a lot more because I've been it's, watching a lot of melodramatic films lately and they get a bit tired. And we even yeah. spoke about a melodrama on your podcast. So we did. Go. And that one was one that kind of goes too far into the melodrama. But no, this this movie is, you know, uh, it is fantastic. I think you're right in calling it a perfect film. Like there are, there is nothing to find fault with in this movie. Uh, can I share my hot take though for this movie? Go ahead. Timothy Hutton is great. Mary Tyler Moore is great, but the MVP of this cast is Donald Sutherland. I think this movie, for as much as those two are, you know, at the top of their game, I think this movie doesn't work nearly as well if you don't have Donald Sutherland to ground the entire dynamic and to have, like, the scene where he goes to visit Judd Hirsch's office and just sort of, like, vents about everything on his mind and then... Uh, when he gets home from that and he's ta- uh, he's talking to Mary Tyler Moore about their son's funeral and mm-hmm. when they're on the golf course and he confronts her there, like without those moments from him, I don't think this movie packs nearly the punch that it does. And I think it's kind of insane that if that everyone else in this cast gets nominated except him when he is maybe my favorite performance of the film. Do we know how that happened I mean, he's never been nominated never, ever yeah. in his career. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think at the very least in his opinion, it's that they just 
don't agree with his politics. And at the time, they just didn't like him. Like he was sort of an abrasive, outspoken figure. And they, it was a sort of punishment for being outspoken to never nominate him. Even when he's in these movies like MASH and Clute and like movies that they're liking enough to nominate and reward other aspects that Sutherland just doesn't get nominated for any of them. It's, it's kind of crazy. It is. A nomination would have been great, although I probably wouldn't give Donald Sutherland my win. My uh, hill that I would like forever die on is that Ordinary People is one of the most deserving Best Picture winners just throughout the 94 winners that we've had. If you start talking to me and saying that Raging Bull was robbed, I'm going to have to leave the room. Just that's, <laughs> uh, I also think that Mary Tyler Moore should have absolutely won Best Actress. Uh, again, a hill that I'm ready to die, die on. She, it's such a brave move for her. And even Judd Hirsch to take such a dramatic detour away from your comedic performances that you've crafted so lovingly on TV. Mary Tyler Moore, obviously in the Mary Tyler Moore show and Judd Hirsch in Taxi. Um, but especially for Moore to play such a narcissistic, awful person right after you've created such a beloved character on TV. And and not just beloved, but lovable. Like lovable Mary Richards well, yeah. is a like one of the most lovable characters in all of TV history. Like yeah. that that was her persona for decades. And then to play this character, you're right. It is very like it seems like it, it's such an inspired casting choice. Mm-hmm. on their behalf and it's such a it's such a, a smart move for her to take this role as well yeah you're you're spot on there yeah um and even even like the di- direction i know a lot of people will make the case about martin scorsese scorsese should have won for raging bull when i once again disagree i think that robert redford pulls some of the most subtle direction or just like blocking in this film it definitely is an actor's point of view as well. Just the way that the frame will slightly favor certain actors, especially when you have the photograph scene, the dinner table scene, and even just um, the way Mary Tyler Moore's Beth will face just the slightest away from away from Conrad. Like she'll be in the kitchen and she will turn to both of them. And in a way she'll be looking at both of them, but she's still favoring the father. It's just yeah. really fantastic work and Robert Redford also uses a lot of like not I guess they are flashback scenes but just it reminds me a little bit of like what Jean-Marc Vallée would create in say like Big Big Little Lies or even Wild that uh, building narration through flashbacks and just very like choppy dreamlike editing And I just like the way that this film unfolds, especially through that. If it was a lot more like linear, I don't think I would uh, be quite as invested, but it definitely builds and builds and builds. And then you have a great final 20 minutes for me. Oh yeah, definitely. And it is kind of interesting that for a movie as, you know, as well edited as it is, it's one of the rare best picture winners that doesn't get an edited nomination. Which I sort of uh, (laughs) I, I kind of see it, but like you said, those flashback sequences, th- there's a few sequences in this movie that I think are very impressively cut and very competently, and it doesn't draw attention to itself, but it's also, you know, very well shot. And this is one of those categories where even if it was nominated, 
I would still give it to Raging Bull just because that's like one of the mm-hmm. best cut Definitive. American films of all time. And I'm I'm not going to argue like they got it right for as much as uh, sometimes they don't get it right. They got it right with that one. Like that is the best option they had that year. They mm. they they got it. They nailed it uh, for for at least for giving Raging Bull the editing win. Um, yeah. But yeah, no ordinary people. It is great. It is a very deserving winner. Uh, it is like you said. There's how how do you talk about this movie? without just you know falling into the effort like effusive praise and the things that it, like everyone has talked about this everyone has an opinion about this movie and it is it's great it, it what there's not much more to say it just it is great what i will say though is <laughs> coming back to it i was a lot of things were you know coming back to me just re-watching it um especially canon in d playing in the beginning with that like autumnal look of i guess midwest america am i are we in midwest america i think so Where's illinois is illinois yes midwest? illinois oh, yeah. illinois is very midwest yeah so just like that atmosphere i i remember that i remember the choir um in the bedroom also has a choir kind of component to it so there you go i re i watched in the bedroom recently i do like ordinary people a lot more but what I wanted to say is that I just hadn't completely forgot that Elizabeth McGovern was in this. And this was like yeah. a sort of like start to her career. I wouldn't say McGovern is like the greatest actor out there. Uh, she's she's fine. Here, she's, she's fine. Good. You know, like once upon <laughs> a time in America, I was like, hmm, this is a bit wooden, I have to say. Uh, yeah. But, you know, it just, yeah, she's good in this film though. Yeah, there's a few. Like I forgot that M. Emmett Walsh was the swim coach, and yeah, when she really showed back, I was like, "Hey, M. Emmett Walsh, <laughs> yeah. glad to see you in this movie." Or um, this is going to be a very deep pull, but one of his friends, like the the sort of fr- the other f- guys on the swim team, one of them was on like three episodes of Lost as like a, a kind of important character for a little bit near the near the beginning, mm-hmm. and I didn't recognize him, and then I saw his name in the credits, and I was like, "Oh, hey." Good for you. I had no idea you were in Ordinary People. But, uh, did you know yeah. who was, uh, in the background in the golf course? I didn't. Who? Glory Graham. No. Is she? No. No. Yeah. You got, you got me there. You got me for half a second there. Uh, imagine no, if secretly, imagine if secretly she's in all of these movies. Yeah. She's the, the most the, prefer- at, pre- Oh, I can't even say the word. The most frequently yeah. cast actress of 1980, but yeah, yeah. I will just like highlight the golf argument as my favorite part of the film. Just like it's a it's away. a great scene. Yeah, it it shows you so much insight into both of those characters mm-hmm. and th- what their relationship has become. And yeah, it's it's such a pivotal moment for the two of them and for the film as a whole. And I I, I think uh, again, just going back to my my it's a great main film. argument here. <laughs> It, it uh, that scene isn't half as impactful if you don't have Donald Sutherland as the very calm mm-hmm. man that is willing to put up with things to a point, and like even when he gets mad, he doesn't raise his voice. He he wants to work things out. That that's who he is. He is a he's a mediator, mm-hmm. and he's stuck with two people that just refuse to mediate. And it's heartbreaking to see him have to come to terms with that and realize that there's no fixing this family. 
and that he can't do like he just has to watch it fall apart mm-hmm. and he ha- like he he can't fix it and the point where he's up in the in the middle of the night at the kitchen table and he basically just realizes I don't know if I love you anymore. I and I I I don't know what to do with that. I don't know now that I've realized this, I don't know what to do with myself anymore. It is yeah. it's going to make me tear up a little bit. A lot, a lot happens in the yeah. last 15 minutes. It really it drives does. it home and kind of like plays into both like the catharsis that kind of exists in this relation there's the relationships and also those that don't i mean because beth and conrad don't have a final scene together she's just gone um but yeah top five best picture winner for me and like top 10 film like probably of all time for me i just love it and i'm so glad it still stands at least my test of time yes you know like those films that you have they're like i remember this was a tweet going around ages ago it was like we talk about film interests as red flags, but what are like green flag films? And for me, if you love ordinary people, that's a green flag. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, and now the rest of the best picture nominees are Coal Miner's Daughter, Raging Bull, Tess, which okay, and yeah. the the <laughs> the Elephant Man, which I liked. Um, yeah. Should we go in sort of alphabetical order? Coal Miner's Daughter? Yeah, we can start with Coal Miner's Daughter, which I, another movie that I watched in high school and then hadn't seen again until this morning. And I forgot how long it takes for Loretta, excuse me, for Loretta Lynn to become a country star in that Mm -hmm. movie. Like there is a full hour before they even get one of her songs on the radio. It is wild how slowly that movie gets into it it's Uh, not it's not the best film out there it also made me realize that these like musical biopic tropes have always been a thing because it's like we need to set up the fact that she was a child because that's how people work we can't go straight into the career that would be too much it it's like really shows you like every aspect of it and i know like tommy lee jones character you do need to see him in the beginning because that relationship also evolves or devolves if you will um but yeah at the end of the day it's another music biopic and i think they're just all the same to me they just always disappoint me the thing is so i was listening to one of your episodes on 1977 with ben miller and uh you guys were talking about how the goodbye girl sets a lot of tropes that like when you go back and Mm. watch the movie now initially you're like oh man it's just doing this trope again and yet no, he that's actually just yeah. yeah. That's the I think coal miner's daughter is kind of a trope creator for a lot of these. You know, mm-hmm. it's like every music biopic after coal miner's daughter kind of pulls from the coal miner's daughter set, and uh, most of them, you know, get into the music part of the music biopic quicker. But yeah, like a lot of like down to the point that she starts out the movie for the first maybe 20 minutes, she's playing 13-year-old Loretta Lynn, and yet it's, you know, 20-something Sissy Spacek. Yeah. The suspension of disbelief was really high for that one. Yeah, And I I just could not watch that part without thinking about Walk Hard and how, uh, you know, they have those lines like, Mm. it's me, your your 14-year-old son, Dewey Cox, and this is my 11-year-old girlfriend, uh, whatever uh, uh, Kristen Wiig's character's name is, but just like, 
how those tropes specifically have stuck around. We're like, we're not going to hire a child actor. It's just going to be the adult. You got to you got to believe that they're mm-hmm. a teenager. That's how movies work. Yeah. But yeah, no, it, it's it's not the best movie. It is incredibly slow. It is incredibly uh, it's it's not quite what we were talking about with Melvin and Howard, where it's a sort of unremarkable person, because Loretta Lynn is a very remarkable person and a, a big trendsetter in her own right with her career. But like what story is there to tell there? Mm. And I think a lot of that also does get po- like the well is poisoned by all the, the music biopics that have come since where we want there to be more to the story when there isn't really much story beyond she was a coal miner's daughter and then she became a country music legend. And like, yeah. that's the story. And, but, but still, yeah, like mm. going back, you would want there to be more to it beyond that. Yeah. And I mean, Sissy Spacek is not the first performer to win an Oscar for playing a real life person. But in the traditional sense of a biopic, especially like a music biopic, she was sort of like a groundbreaker in that regard. So her win, especially over Moore, is pretty well documented. Um, although I don't really have much to say about the performance, I I think it's a much more charismatic star tone than we see in like the replicas, like Reese Witherspoon in Walk the Line, for instance. Oh, yeah. I think it's a much better performance than that. Um, and I also just like those powder keg moments where she does sort of lose it a bit because it's sort of like a cheap shot to bring depth to your character. But that final scene when she's breaking down really adds a lot to her performance. Um, my also my thought also was watch that final breakdown scene and then just go straight to Nashville and watch Ronnie Blakely do the exact same thing. Because that yeah. Ronnie Blakely in uh, Nashville was inspired by like a Loretta Lynn episode on stage. Um, but the thing that like made me curious, and this is something that would be covered on your podcast eventually, is the Patsy Cline subplot. And it just made me yeah. want to watch Se- Sweet Dreams with Jessica Lange. Because I'm like, Patsy Cline, that's an interesting person. Yes, Patsy Cline is someone that has a, a much more interesting life story to her, I feel like, especially mm. with the fact that she died so young. I have not seen Sweet Dreams yet, but like mm-hmm. you said, that's a movie I'm going to be. That's one of the many Jessica Lange Jessica, movies. Like all of them. <laughs> Almost all of them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it is kind of int- like Beverly D'Angelo is not in that movie very much. And yet with her few scenes, she does kind of steal the movie away from anyone else. Like she, she's such a mm-hmm. charismatic presentation of that character that I am kind of surprised she wasn't able to earn a nomination just because it seems like it very well could have happened for her for this movie. And it, uh, it just didn't, but yeah, I, 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 mean, it I, makes I agree sense. actually. Yeah. Yeah. It At makes least... sense that the one person in the cast that gets nominated is Sissy Spacek. Like you mentioned Reese Witherspoon in walk the line. Uh, that would be more equivalent if like Tommy Lee Jones had won for this movie and not Sissy Spacek, oh, just because like the, <laughs> the sort of supporting, uh, you know partner that yes spouse that is not the main thrust of the movie like if this if this was the year if tommy lee jones had won best actor for this movie and sissy spacek hadn't won best actress that would have been a weird little footnote much in the same way that reese witherspoon winning for walk the line is uh which also brings me to just a weird little note for this year for the oscars is that all four of these winning performances fall into tropes 
that they really like very specific tropes that they really like in general. You get a country music star, mm-hmm. you get a boxer, you get a grieving family member and you get a supporting wife. Like those are four tropes that for whatever reason, the Academy falls back on so many times for performances specifically. Like there are a lot of uh, actors that have won or been nominated for playing country stars. Like mm-hmm. you said, Ronnie Blakely, Robert Duvall, both of the people from Walk the Line, Jesse Spacek, Jeff Bridges. There's like that is for whatever reason a very Bradley small. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. The more you think about it, the more names pop up. Same thing mm-hmm. with boxers. I did I did a whole episode on the hurricane on my show recently, mm-hmm. and you get that raging bull, million dollar baby, the champ, the fighter, not the boxer. Weirdly, but uh. uh there's a lot. There's a lot mm-hmm. of boxing movies specifically that get acting nominations too. And then it, there, there's longer lists to, to say for supporting wives or oh, grieving yeah. family members. But like those are just that's something I've always found funny about this year. Yeah. And especially with like uh, announcing acting nominations, they do it in say like 1983 where um, Shirley MacLaine wins for Terms of Endearment. They give a sort of like log line of the performance and it's always like a wife, a mother. Yeah, it just it really like um, drums at home, just the things that they like. And you are right. I never actually thought about that, that they really do fall back into their favorite genres, if you will. I think yeah. ooh, what's, we just needed like, I don't know, a political thriller that w- in the nominations and that would have rounded it yeah. all out. But then you also like... Uh, for the other nominated performances too you have someone playing a character with a deformity you have uh i haven't seen all of these movies so i can't speak (laughs) to some of the others but you know a lot of these roles if not the specific roles but the sort of trope that you can boil down these performances to this is a very fallback on what we like here and not to say that like of the of the winning performances none of these are bad these are all good to great performances that win it's just fun to talk about how they like what they like and sometimes that happens to line up with very good performances mm-hmm. yeah um the elephant man since you mentioned that by way of yeah. deformity is actually it's definitely an outlier in this best picture lineup but it also does fit in quite nicely i found i am glad that it did get nominated um because just because i just like it first and foremost and i definitely like lynch as a director um weatherman lynch um he's in this mainstream era kind of which is like fascinating to see kind of yeah yeah let's just say kind of uh he's three years uh removed from a razor head which is even more fascinating to think about just that evolution of type that he went through um, the, my most interesting fact I can think about for this film is that Mel Brooks is a producer, but he had yeah. his name rescinded because he didn't want people thinking it was a comedy. Um, and obviously his wife Anne Bancroft is in it and I love her. I wrote it down as a cameo. It's not really a cameo. She is a supporting star, but it is such a recognizable face in, a, a film of at the time relatively new people including anthony hopkins who took despite his age quite some time to create a name in film yeah yeah. this is a movie that i covered um on our friend sam's podcast uh the oscar doesn't go to 
I, I, I talked about this. Yeah, I talked about mm. this a couple months ago. So like, if you want to hear more in depth of my thoughts on <laughs> yeah. that, go check out that. Go check out that show in general. That's where we're just all cross advertising on this show. Well, yeah, I've I've been on that, so yeah. you can check yes. me out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but no, Elephant Man is great. Elephant Man, maybe like. I go back and forth between that and ordinary people as far as what my best picture choice is this year. Thank you. I, think, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> I think they're both so incredibly strong and for such vividly different reasons. Like they're both very emotional movies, but the way they go about sort of extracting those emotions and drumming them up and like building sympathy for their characters is very different. And uh, I don't know. I, I, I love that movie. I love John Hurt in it. I love Anthony Hopkins. I think Anne Bancroft, like you said, is very good in her few scenes. Wendy Hiller, I think, is very strong. John mm-hmm. Keelgood is good when he shows up. Just you know, and it's a very well-made movie too. Like all of the production elements, the makeup, obviously, but the cinematography, the costume, just everything about that movie, it fully envelops you in its tone and transports you back to this era, and it just works it's an outlier not just in this year but an outlier in david lynch's filmography because it is uh there are some sort of surrealist elements every once in a while but it's a very grounded film and it's i i just love that this Mm -hmm. david lynch movie was able to get like eight nominations in this year yeah and especially when you go say you're watching you've watched mahalan drive and you've watched blue velvet maybe you've watched a race ahead to um, and then you see a David Lynch film that actually managed to get a Best Picture nomination where both Blue Velvet and Mulholland Drive are films of topic on this podcast because they did quite well but didn't make it in. Someone please choose Blue Velvet. I'm like dying to talk about that. <laughs> and But yeah, so you watch it and you wonder if that surrealism, that phantasmic quality that he brings into his films is going to be there. And in the first scene, it's there and it's just a very satisfying moment as a Lynch fan that he didn't completely turn it down. There is that, like you said, vivid feel to the film and it is quite an interesting take on a story that have, could have easily be tur- easily turned into something that would have been sappy, melodramatic, all that. So yeah, I, it's a really uh, enigmatic take on an interesting topic. And yeah, plug that episode again, because I mean, I'll probably go listen to that after this. Yeah, go check it out. We did it. I don't remember how long ago, maybe Mm. October. I could be wrong. But it was like end of last year. We did that episode. Um, I also just in general, the sort of Oscars flirtation with David Lynch as an auteur is more prolific than you would expect. Like he's made 10 feature films and of them he has a 60% batting average for getting at least one nomination. Like uh, Elephant Man gets these mm-hmm. eight nominations and then Dune gets like a sound nomination. Blue Velvet gets a director nomination. Uh, Wild at Heart gets a supporting yeah. actress nomination. I've done an episode on that. Go check that out mm-hmm. on my show. Uh, Firewalk With Me doesn't get anything. Lost Highway doesn't get anything. Straight Story gets a best actor nomination for Richard Farnsworth a future episode for my show stick around like subscribe to my podcast so you can find that episode whenever i do it um holland drive gets a director nomination and then nothing for inland empire of course but like (laughs) six out of ten movies for someone as weird as david lynch to get at least one oscar nomination he does Uh, well for himself he does and then he yeah yeah, and then he got the honorary award a couple years ago so 
Mm-hmm. They like him. They mm-hmm. they they really like him. To quote they like him. Something. Yeah. It's a shame that his film, the new film in quotation marks, is just a lie. Yeah. How disappointing. <laughs> How who knows? actually disappointing. Yeah. Who knows? Actually, um, he, he might make another one soon. Hopefully. Hopefully, hopefully. he combines the the fascination of weather with DIY yeah. and turns that oh, man. into. And Laura oh, Dern is a, a weather person, presenter or something. That would be great, I would be, actually. Yeah, I would be out there every day with a billboard and a cow for the consideration. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that cow is great. So John Hurt versus Robert De Niro. Whose side are you on? It's incredibly tough, even removing Hutton and Sutherland from the equation. Like just boiling it down to those two. I do genuinely go back and forth. Um, having rewatched Raging Bull for this, it is just as technically impressive a performance yeah. as as its legacy would have you believe. Like it is not in any way overblown as one of the greatest performances of all time. Mm-hmm. And yet also I think John Hurt does some like does so much with so little that he can do under all that makeup that he's still able to bring out everything that he does with that character. I think right now, if I have to pick one, I'm going to say John Hurt, but ask me on a different day and I could say De Niro, ask me on a different day, I would say Hutton or Sutherland or mm-hmm. anyone. Like there's, it's a, it's an incredibly strong year. I, I don't envy anyone that had to cast a ballot in yeah. 1980. I love how Timothy Hutton just changed categories then. <laughs> it's because he was 20. It's because he was yeah. 20. Yeah, That's sure. why. Um, Although also that was something that I I tried to pay attention to rewatching it on this go around and putting myself in the shoes of a of an older academy voter who is probably more likely to side with Mary Tyler Moore or Donald Sutherland as the parents as mm-hmm. the actors they're more familiar with. Yeah. I can kind of see how the fraud came about, how the category fraud came about to putting him in supporting where you really are like he he is at such a remove from his parents and is kind of presented as an enigma from their points of view that like for the first time watching it again for this i i i got why they put him in supporting specifically from that perspective he's the lead of the movie but i get why voters would feel differently yeah, at the exactly. time and it's also interesting to me it's the same instance as paper moon when you have someone who is in the wrong category but they're also up against a co-star who has much much less screen time and having judd hirsch in the supporting actor category as well you're kind of like yeah no he's he's a lead when he's up against judd hirsch because yeah judd hirsch has a an actual supporting performance in a metaphorical sense as well um but yeah to raging bull like you, I didn't rewatch this. I don't think I ever need to rewatch Raging Bull. It left enough of an impression, and I don't say that necessarily as a compliment. I think, yes, like you said, technically great film. We're not going to deny that that it's like one of the best edited films of all time. Thelma Schoonmaker, uh, top top at her craft, um, but it's just too cruel and brutal for me to want to revisit and. Uh, uh, Robert De Niro's Jake LaMotta, that's the character's name, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Is, it's a fantastic tour de force um, and a very physical performance too. And physicality can tie into 
you know, the emotions that actors can bring out like quite well, if it's done right. Uh, another example is like someone being nominated for a musical, I think in a completely different realm, but uh, similar. Um, but yeah, I, I just don't, <laughs> I, I don't really have much to say about Raging Bull um, because I don't think it is like Martin Scorsese's best. I think it's a good film for what it's worth, but yeah, I, I'm not, I'm not a Raging Bull stan. Yeah. I think a lot of how I can boil down my thoughts on this movie as, uh, and its place in Scorsese's filmography is that if you were to ask me to rank the movies that I think are the best directed from his filmography, this one is maybe near, if not at the top of that list. But if you were to ask me to rank my favorites, I don't think it makes the top five. Yeah. I think just, you know, it is so technically impressive, but it's about such a just misanthropic character that it puts you at such a remove that it's hard to connect with the film. It's it's not that it's a cold film, but it kind of mm. leaves you as the audience member a little bit cold because you don't have an anchor point to let yourself get, you know, brought in. And so you're kind of watching. You're it's, it's you're a spectator to this story, mm-hmm. much as you would be a spectator to one of his boxing fights. And I think that that's an intentional choice. It, 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 this movie is not trying to get you on his side by any means. Uh, but it's just sometimes it can be tough to to say that this is an enjoyable film more so sure. than it is sure. an impressive one. Impressive film, exactly. And I think that's like the case that I brought in earlier of people that would say Martin Scorsese deserved to win Best Director for this film. And Ordinary People has kind of created a reputation amongst people that don't really follow the Oscars as a bad winner in that field. But yeah, I do agree in that Scorsese maybe even over-directs the film in that he injects too much into it. He doesn't let the film sort of have breathing space. Um, but I wouldn't give it to him for this. My, I didn't even know what I would pick Martin Scorsese for to, to win his Best Director Award. Maybe... Yeah, no, no idea. Because I don't really think about like Scorsese like this. I, I've seen plenty of his films and I like them. Um, but yeah, my favorite film of his is his least Scorsese film, and that's The Age of Innocence. So that's a good pick. This um this isn't my personal favorite, but one that's up there for me, and it's a topical to this conversation, and maybe would be the one I would give it to him for at the very least, like over the competition is the aviator i think that is a okay. movie that's a movie with that one that i yeah i yeah. really like that movie that's also kind of a i i really don't like million dollar baby uh yeah. it all comes back because we're talking about boxing, boxing and we're talking yeah. about howard hughes and it's all it's just 1980 all over again yeah. in that year except this time the boxing movie did win and the Howard Hughes one was nominated. So it's not really all over again at all. It's just this vaguely just relevant. Thread, to, just yeah, a slight yeah. thread. There's a little thread there. But yeah, no, I think The Aviator is sort of late period Scorsese firing on all cylinders. Like, I'm just going to go over the top with it. It's going to be a visual sort of hyper feast. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that's a movie that is really expertly... Like, that... Uh, w- it works because he's at the helm to rein it all in another director trying to take that 
whale of a script and mm-hmm. make it something digestible would be it, they'd be in over their head. like it takes someone like Scorsese to make that movie palatable and yeah. I, I think that if I'm giving him only one win that might be it as weird as it is to say now that you've said that I do I do kind of agree with that I always find it curious that the aviator didn't win best picture considering it tells a story about a Hollywood figure and it's so old Hollywood in its scope. I mean, you have Catherine Hepburn, Ava Gardner as characters in the film, of course. Um, But just, yeah, I always find that curious, even though my winner for 2004 is sideways. So like neither of them, but yeah, not a million dollar baby fan at all and a film that i have sadly seen too many times it's not good it's a bad movie it's yeah i i think it's an actively bad movie but like i said earlier they like boxing movies also i just realized when i was listing off all the boxing movies they like i didn't say rocky so nobody come come in my mentions and say hey you forgot rocky even though we were mentioning 76 supporting actor before as well Burgess yeah, Meredith, and, and also Taxi Driver is in that year, and that's more Scorsese. It all, it's mm-hmm. all connected. It's all there's. A, you can make a whole sort of like conspiracy board with Martin Scorsese, the Oscars, <laughs> and movies about boxing. Yeah, I don't and think we've ever had this many coincidences in in one episode. This is amazing. It just happens. It just happens like that sometimes. Oh mm. well. Yeah, but well, if we're going to talk about Million Dollar Baby, now that's a film that follows its beats to a T, whereas Raging Bull kind of creates its own beats, if you will. It's almost definitely quite like, um, I don't know if maybe there is a scientific term I can attribute Raging Bull to that sounds really fancy, but I just think that it is also just an experimental film uh, in its own regard as well. And when you're watching it, even though, like you said, you do feel really removed from it, there is this modernity that exists in it, even though it is a 40-year-old film. At yeah. Very, like, fresh. Um, yeah. And it's just... telling a story that is also like 40, year, 40 years old at the time. Like, we mm-hmm. are a, about as removed... No, we're, we're more removed now from Raging Bull than Raging Bull was from... I think the earliest it's set is 1941. So, like... We are just a few years past that gap, which is (laughs) wild. But yeah, no, that movie does feel very contemporary Mm -hmm. for telling such a, you know, decades old story. There is a life to it. Yeah. Although it's, yeah, it's an interesting one. I don't think I, maybe, okay. I have this response with a few other films that people have quite a lot of nice things to say or, they held in high regard, but I rate them fairly lowly. I would say another example would be like Apocalypse Now for me. 2001 is up there, of course, in that, yes, I can appreciate the technical elements to it, but a film also needs to draw you in with its characters and an emotional heart. And yeah, like we've said in about three different versions prior to this, Raging Bull <laughs> doesn't have that. So let's move on to... Tess, shall we? The last of our. Are you sure there's not more to say about Raging Bull? We 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 have to talk about Tess. We we. Okay, fine. Okay, Raging Bull. Kathy Moriarty. I do like her performance a lot. Yeah, and Joe say. Pesci. Joe Pesci is also very good in that. It, uh, it's yeah, he'd win for I, ten for Goodfellas. I don't really 
mind. <laughs> yeah, I, I I wouldn't give him the win over Hutton if we're sticking to the category fraud. But you yeah. know, I don't I don't think it's a bad performance from him. And I had forgotten that there's, it's a lot less the sort of loud mouthed, uh, hyper violent Joe Pesci character that we've come to know mm-hmm. from later in his career. It's a lot more subdued of a performance from him that I had completely forgotten about. Yeah. But yeah. Okay. Fine, we can talk oh, about Okay, test. Lovely. Um, all right. You have to say one positive thing about this film. Uh, I there are I do have some positive <laughs> things to say. I think the cinematography. The, yeah, the, the wins that it did get, the cinematography win, the costume design, and I think production design yeah. was the other one. Those are not bad wins. I think the cinematography is inter- interesting because it was Jeffrey Unsworth and he died during the movie. So they hired mm -hmm. a second uh, DV to come in and take over for him. Uh, But I I think it's, it's a very well shot movie. I think it looks gorgeous. And I will also say, I think Nastasha Kinski is very good here. Like, I think it is a very strong performance from her uh, in a movie that otherwise I could not care less about. I do agree. Um, it's also interesting to me that this is the same Natasha Kinski who did Paris, Texas four years later. There yeah. is, I maybe underestimated her as a complex actor, although I didn't really know enough about her career. Um, I haven't seen like those erotic thrillers that she's done or anything. I really haven't yeah. seen much of her career, but yeah, Tess was a, f- <laughs> it's definitely a film that you have to be patient with if I did watch this in 1.25 speed. I'm not going to lie, but it still felt very slow to me because everything just like dragged and dragged. Um, yeah. But to sort of like break down what Tess is for those who haven't seen it or for those who don't want to watch a Roman Polanski film, which is also very fair. Um, yeah. It follows Natasha Kinski. She's Tess and she's Tess Derbyfield. But the Derbyvilles are like i don't know a, f- a famous family or like a just a rich family they're, they're aristocrat it's an aristocratic yeah. sort of family of old that has since kind of died off yeah the name has been sold off to another family as as far as their status but she is and they've changed bio- the name she's like and, the yeah. Yeah. she's a biological heir so mm. and yeah. <laughs> so she gets involved with I guess a cousin, but a false cousin because he's in the real name is Stokes, but they're like Stokes Durbeville. I never really got that. And I also didn't really like yeah. care enough unless you can correct me. I think what it is, is that their family just essentially bought the title, like bought right. the Durbeville name and was like, hey, well, this this name has status associated with it. Let's just buy it. So they just yeah. bought a name and just became that new family, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> Which is uh, crazy that you can just do that and just completely lie so. about your lineage. Um, apparently. Um, and also, so the first relationship doesn't go well. And then she meets a second man. It's basically just following Tess, who's a peasant girl, as that's the description on IMDb, as she navigates kind of like the affections of two men. So the first man is played by Lee Lawson is the Stokes Durbeville, and then she falls in love with the second man. His name is Angel, which is just hilarious to me. And that's actually played by Peter Firth. So a kind of a name here. He's just nominated three years prior for Equus. Um, And, you know, it's just what you'd expect with a large epic like this. But this film lost me and then regained my interest and then lost me and then regained my interest like so many times over its three-hour runtime. Yeah, I just didn't know what to feel. Yeah. 
it's long enough that it can do that to you multiple times over its course. I yeah. like you said you watched it on 1.25 speed. I watched it while I was doing other things. Like I, mm-hmm. I did not want to spend three hours this afternoon focused <laughs> entirely on tests. Like this, this is not a movie. Yeah, the- <laughs> yeah it, it's an exhausting movie because it's so, so slow and mm. so very few things happen. Like there are, there are, you know, uh, you know, what's the word I'm thinking of? Vignettes. There are small mm-hmm. things that happen here and there, but ultimately, do they like? Did you need to keep every single thing from the original? Uh, you know, it was a serialized story that was published yeah. over a, a f- like in volumes, uh, and and it's like a a very highly regarded book, uh, Tess of the D'Urbervilles, mm. um, and but you know, you know. Do you have to keep it all in? You could shorten this and not lose much of the actual meat of the story. You could yeah. lop off probably a full hour of content here and there yeah. and not lose much. Yeah, and it's the thing that always happens with me when I watch these long films in that I come to the realization about 20 minutes in and say, okay, this is why it's a three-hour film because we have a scene that is like filler almost. Like it does nothing really, not much actually happens in that film. It could definitely be compressed into another scene and you would still create the same message. Um, and it's even interesting to me, although I will say the film as a whole, once it's all finished, you can slightly appreciate it more as opposed to when it's like unraveling because it's really hard to hook uh, into it. But I was expecting Merchant Ivory, if you will, but this reminded yeah. me more of like, I don't know, like the leopard. Have you seen that? I have not. No, I, I kept very thinking European. Like, yeah, I was thinking like Barry Lyndon. Uh, oh, yeah, or... but I love Barry Lyndon though. Yeah, like yeah, that's the thing. <laughs> Barry Lyndon is is much better. But mm. that's what I kept thinking of in terms of like we're just gonna follow this one person in old times, kind of you know. <laughs> interacting with a bunch of people and there's some romance and there's some violence and there's some uh, big houses yeah. with, yeah, there's uh, a lot of, you know, set dressing, uh, mm. but yeah, no, uh, uh, it's, it's not a movie that I think I will ever have any needs, reason to go back to. Uh, I, yeah. Or I even like this... rush to see in the first place for people who haven't seen. Yes. It, but this was a one and done for me. Yeah. Uh, although I did think Nastasha Kinski was very strong for like she was 17 during the making of it. She is incredibly young here and it's crazy. You know, it's it's very weighted to talk about not just incredibly young women in regards to Roman Polanski but also in regards to Nastasha Kinski and her sort of troubled career having, mm. you know, Klaus Kinski as her abusive father and mm-hmm. the sort of like you said, she was in a few erotic movies before this one. Like she has a whole movie where she is kind of a Lolita type figure with Marcello Mastroianni, where she has full frontal nude scenes at like 15. Uh, she was definitely exploited in her early career. And uh, there's a, uh, yeah, you don't see her pop up in as many things because she had every reason to step away from uh, the the sort of, not just Hollywood, but but the the film, just industry. Uh, com- yes, the industry yeah. in general. Um, yeah. But she's she's a strong actress. Yeah. I think she's very good in here. I think 
Her performance in Paris, Texas is one of my favorites of all time. Yeah, she's so strong for such a small yet pivotal role. Uh, that movie in general is just great, but she, mm-hmm. she, her presence in the last act ties everything together in a way that is just, you know, heartbreaking. Absolutely. And that's why I mentioned before, like chameleonic in that it's hard to believe these are the same performer. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so I mentioned the leopard. Yeah, sorry, sorry to bring yeah. the mood down talking about, you know, Natasha Kinski having to deal with abuse her entire oh. career. I, I did not mean to uh, no, that's get fine. that dark. But that's an, well, that's a just, part of her life and it's a part yeah. of an actor's context. So I think it does need to be discussed um, with this film. So, yeah, the leopard I mentioned in that it's very European in that it doesn't really supply a lot of style or even mood. Because the thing is, I will watch, say, like a Visconti or a De Sica, uh, especially in the 60s. And they're such cold, brooding films that don't really lend you, uh, I don't know, like a warm hand, if you will. They're just kind of like cold and you're just sitting there and you don't really feel invested. And it's sort of hard to like, first of all, rate it, but critically talk about it. And I definitely got a little bit of that with this film. Um, but yeah, when I was, I seriously expected to see something a la Merchant Ivory, which I didn't have. But I also want to say, I don't know how recent your memory of Tess is, but what did you say you watched, I watched it today? It. Yeah. yeah. Today. <laughs> so like there's, I don't want to spoil it, but there's a really like, I'd say violent thing that happens, but it happens off screen. And that kind yeah. of like pivots the uh, final act into fruition and it just doesn't really make sense because you don't really get that from the character. And it yeah, just happens. A... And then we're at Stonehenge. And I've never really seen Stonehenge incorporated in a film like this before. She's just having a nap on Stonehenge and something happens. I don't want to give it away for those who haven't seen yeah. the film. But uh, maybe that has given you enough <laughs> of a hook to go and seek it out. But yeah, I will yeah. say the cinematography once again is like top notch. It really is one of the most stunning films I think I've ever seen in terms yeah, of it does, it's beautiful. It does look great. Uh, and the costumes and sets are mm-hmm. also very good, which it won for. Um, it won score. I don't really, yeah, it is really a very say good fame score. is like, fame is like 1980s on steroids. And I don't know if that's the best score yeah. from that year. Yeah. yeah. I do. I, this would be something that would be interesting to dive into. And I don't really know what else, like I can't think of anything else off the top of my head, but it does feel kind of rare to have a best picture nominee that is entirely helmed by an actress. Like she is, there's no leading actor to this movie. It is all about her Mm -hmm. and the actress doesn't get a nomination. Uh, Just because so often if there is any movie that's a best picture nominee that's led by a woman that's like oh well one of our slots is filled up okay now we we have one of them we can because you know especially in this time where they're scrambling sort of for movies led by women that we Mm -hmm. can nominate and so often you get like for my show there's about 60 or so in actor supporting actor and supporting actress that have been the only nomination for their movie but for lead actress there's 90 like it is yeah. that like they so often go for 
movies that they're not nominating elsewhere, especially in Best Picture. So I would be like, I can't think of any others off the top of my head that are Best Picture nominees with a clear female lead and that lead actress doesn't get a nomination. And I think a lot of that has to do with Nisa- uh, she was just young. Mm. And this is a year where they're frauding Timothy Hutton and Michael O'Keefe into supporting actor because they were young. Uh, and I, yeah. I can't imagine they would have campaigned Kinski in supporting. I mean, I was also, I, oh God, could you imagine? <laughs> Secretly, this is like Peter Thurst's film. It's not. Yeah. But, um, I was surprised this didn't get a screenplay nomination. That one always yeah. surprises me, especially it's such a literary film. Um, yeah. But, and also you know, Raging Bull missing uh, adapted screenplay this year too. Although that's more on just they fucking hated Paul Schrader. <laughs> that's, yeah. 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 Um, Paul Schrader's Facebook posts. Please oh check. Wh- please check them out if you have. <laughs> what a man! What a man! <laughs> oh god. Um, but yeah, actually, like a fairly solid lineup for Best Picture this year. I have to say, like, even though I'm not the biggest fan of uh, Raging Bull or Tess or even Coal Miner's Daughter, I'm just like, it's a good lineup. But here are three films that I dislike. Yeah. <laughs> no, but, like, I mean, it's they're definitely yeah. worth seeing. <laughs> yes, they, they are all for one reason or another movies that have held up that are you know classics mm-hmm. uh, to some mm-hmm. tests less so just because it's hard to uh, not really hard to find that movie but like no one is scrambling to put this three-hour roman polanski movie on their streaming services yeah uh, unless your criterion channel which you can watch it there if you'd like yeah uh um but yeah but like, yeah as melvin and howard let's get back to that should it have being nominated for best picture and do you have theories as to why it might have missed i think if we're if we're just talking about these six movies like if these are the top six and i have to pick five yes i would i would put it in over tests but for the year at large no i i would not have i would not have put it in my top five some of the like i'm gonna pull up my letterbox and see how accurate it is when i just sort it by this year uh but yeah, like three of these make my top five, honestly. Elephant Man, Ordinary People, and Raging Bull. And then The Shining and Nine to Five would be uh, my... Like, looking at it, I mean, I'm sure there's other... Like, Airplane is up there. Kagemusha mm-hmm. is up there. There's others that are... You know, if I take a more informed look than just, hey, Letterboxd, what did I rank <laughs> however many months ago? Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, like, this is a, a fairly good representation of where uh the actual good movies are this year yeah and also you know you can mention films like the shining and nine to five and we may like those films but do they stand a chance here absolutely no no so it really does fall into that academy's taste that you mentioned before how they always resort to the same film just in different modes and yes here we have that to a t and what really rounds it off is that biopic there. That, to me, even though we haven't had a biopic, especially a music biopic, in Best Picture since, God, is it Ray? Bohemian I... Rhapsody. Oh, Bohemian yeah, my Rhapsody. God. Oh, sorry, I have expelled that movie from my mind. So that's... With good reason. With good reason. <laughs> so I, I'm not the best person to talk about that. But yeah, um, it's been pretty fun talking about 1980. Do you have anything else you'd like to uh... say? Or... I'll just, I mean, I haven't covered any of these movies yet, but I'll just plug 
I'm going to be talking about this year three times on my show. Testament? So in future, no, wait, no, what's the no testament's 83. Sorry, so what's it's the a Jack Lemon one tribute, tribute. So tribute, uh, which got nominated for Jack Lemon, Gloria, which got nominated for Jenna Rollins, mm-hmm. and Inside Moves, which got nominated for Diana Scarwood. So go check out my show. And at some point in the future, I'm going to be talking about this year three whole more times. So mm-hmm. you'll hear a lot of these opinions again. And once again, watch Magnific- Magnificent Obsession and then listen to our episode for just a yes. fully formed experience with that film because you would definitely have questions and thoughts. And I think we covered pretty much everyone's questions and thoughts because boy, oh boy, I, you know, Jane Wyman, an actress, we can't really say, you know, she's a good actress for what she does. And that movie, though Douglas Sirk, is not his best film. But yeah, that was like a really entertaining uh, episode for me just because I wasn't expecting to dislike that film as much as I ended up disliking. But Same yeah. here. Yeah. Those are always the, int- like, that's always interesting when you go into a movie with high expectations and it, Meets it none of really them. <laughs> doesn't deliver. And then you have to talk about it with someone on mic. Yeah. Mm. It's always fun. Yeah. But like Gordon mentioned, you can find him on the Lone Acting Nominees podcast. Yes. And what's your handle or where can people find you there? Yeah. So that show is on Twitter and Letterboxd at Lone Acting Noms and on Instagram at The Lone Acting Nominees. Uh, and also you can find me on Twitter at Mark Wahlberg, like the actor, but with a bird instead. And he's not Mark Wahlberg. Don't get it twisted. No, I'm not. <laughs> nor am I a, a fan of Mark Wahlberg. Uh, not a great actor, not a great guy, but it's a funny name and it's what I'm stuck with. Mm-hmm. And you can find Out of Oscar Podcast where you listen to your podcast and on Twitter at Out of Oscar Pod. In the coming months, we'll switch up the format a little bit. I will move into Best Actress and Best Actor and Best Supporting Actor and Best Supporting Actress. Not in that order, in a totally random fashion, but stick around for that and I'll see you next time. Bye.